welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'm happy to introduce this hour's subject, Addictive and Obsessive Compulsive Behavior. And our speaker is Lee from Nashville. Hi, my name is Lee and I am a sexaholic. I, uh, I start that way because uh, this talk, if, uh, if some of you may not know, it may sound uh, somewhat technical, and it's not a technical talk. It's my strength, hope, and experience, again. It's part of my story, and uh, it's, a, um, uh, it's, a great, it's a great deal of the reason that I uh, was able to let go of enough shame uh, to proceed on with uh, recovery. Uh, it, it was the, it was really the key for, uh, getting me started. And, uh, since I've been in recovery, I've done a great deal of consideration about this, uh, uh, this issue. And, um, and it's changed and evolved, but it's always been a key part of, uh, keeping me pointed in the right direction. Um, and what this is, uh, for me is a, um, uh, actually will be what can be described about as a paradigm shift. I don't know if any of y'all have listened to Stephen Covey's uh, people, but he talks about paradigm shifts. And then he tells a story uh, about being on a subway in uh, in New York, and the, and the subway stops, and a man and about six children get on, and everybody's sitting there quietly reading their papers and it's a Sunday morning and they're going and the, and the man sits down and he just is sitting there and the subway takes off and the children just go berserk. They're all over the cab. They're tearing up things and hitting newspapers. They're screaming. They're fighting in the floor. And the man's not doing anything, you know. He's just riding along. And they're running around screaming. And so, and again, so he's sitting there and all along and he's getting tired. Ah, ah, this is tough to deal with. And uh, finally, after a few minutes, he couldn't stand it anymore, uh, and he turns over to the fellow uh, uh, and he says, uh, Sir, uh, uh, could you uh, perhaps do something about your children? They're um, uh, kind of uh, being noisy. And the guy kind of comes to, and he, and he looks and he says, Oh, uh, yes, I, uh, I guess you're right. Um, we just uh, we just came from the hospital and uh, and uh, the mother just died and I guess they don't know what to think. Uh, and and the point is is that as soon as he says that there's a whole shift in the understanding of what's going on. There's a whole shift in the tolerance of the kids that are running around. There is a, a whole shift in the willingness to approach the solution in a different manner. Uh, there's a whole shift in the ability to have acceptance uh, of what's happening. And, uh, and so a paradigm shift uh, is, is what happens 
to me when I got started in recovery, uh, and and this um, this talk is about what what brought that on. By the way, if you all would like, I'm probably going to do some drawing on a board, and if you want to be able to see it, you may be able to, you may want to come around and sit a little bit more in front. Um, one of the uh, one of the real foundations of the 12-step recovery movement, and always has been since the early days of AA, has been that uh, alcoholism uh, was a disease, or is a disease, and uh, that addiction is a disease, and it does not have anything to do about willpower, uh, personal strength, uh, good intentions, uh, good education, or anything else of that nature. It is a, it is a disease. Because as long as I looked at it as something that was just a basic, uh, weakness in myself, then I wanted to take responsibility for fixing it myself and could not, uh, come to grips with the need to have any help. And so that a lot of what has evolved over the last 60 years in recovery and in the understanding of the process of addiction has come based on what was started back in the 1930s with the AA movement. And today it's, it's really fascinating how uh, generalizable that information is and how much of what uh, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob uh, observed turns out to be scientifically and uh, an accurate an accurate uh, assessment of the situation from a whole different perspective. They just looked at what they saw, and uh, over the years it has become more and more apparent that it was true. So that I have uh, uh, received this information. It was a it was part of what was taught to me as I began my first few months of recovery. Uh, so it has been a part of my strength, hope, and experience for the past uh, 12 years. And uh, I have had the opportunity to share it on a number of occasions. Uh, and it's, um, it's always helpful for me to hear, and I hope it is for you all. Um, so, that, oh, by the way, uh, I have uh, these um, handouts that are basically most of what I said. Uh, this is not essay material. It is not intended to be. It's just basically copies of the diagrams and the text of a lot of what I'll say. It was actually made for another uh, presentation, but it has most of the uh, insides of this uh, of this presentation. So if, if you all want some, you can. As you see, this, this was a, uh, uh, this was a presentation about food addiction, and, uh, it's, um, not necessarily, not necessarily an essay presentation, but maybe some of you all will get something out of that part of it too. Uh, <laughs> I've heard a little bit of, uh, uh, comments about that, uh, from lunchtime on. Well, at any rate, if you look at the disease of addiction, uh, I, 
a disease, according to the medical concept, has to be uh, characterized by a number of uh, specific uh, characteristics. One is, is that it has to be a, a primary condition and not a secondary condition. It has to have a uh, uh, set of, sign, of uh, signs and symptoms that allows for uh, appropriate diagnosis. It has to have a predictable course. Uh, it has to have identifiable etiological agents uh, and uh, pathophysiology and anatomy. Uh, so that there are a number of uh, just basic medical definitions that are required for something to be called a disease. Uh, and as we look at the disease of addiction in itself, and it has those um, those criteria, so it does indeed qualify as being a, a primary disorder, or a primary disease process. The primary uh, symptoms of the disease of addiction are, number one, compulsivity. So compulsivity is the primary uh, symptom that we all have that are addicts. Uh, so that's what we will spend much of the time talking about, since this is a, this is a talk on compulsion and obsession and some of the solutions. So the other symptoms include um, a loss of mental health, a loss of physical health, a loss of spiritual health, a changes in tolerance, uh, and drug amnesia. Uh, and I don't know, many of, of us have had blackout, uh, <laughs> FA blackout. Uh, so that um, we, uh, we look at that as a part of the signs and symptoms that allow for accurate diagnosis of what we term the disease of addiction. And I, and I know that there have been lots and lots of data that have come out and lots of opinions that have been written about uh, obsession, compulsion, and addiction and as to whether or not it is a disease at all. And there are many people who firmly believe that it isn't. Um, and I'm not trying to enter into that, uh, that debate. Uh, I am going to be talking about what I believe. This is my strength, hope, and experience. Uh, and I'm not uh, uh, asserting that it's anything else. Uh, but what we will talk about, we will have certain very specific uh, definitions of the, of the class of people that we're talking about. So, if you uh, talk about addiction, they started to wonder about alcoholism back in the 1950s when uh, there was a, uh, uh, a physician, I think it was in Baltimore, that did some uh, groundbreaking studies on this, and she went out and uh, uh, collected the uh, corpses of alcoholics who had frozen to death uh, in uh, the, the uh, uh, wintertime, took them back to the lab and did autopsies, Ex took the brains and extracted them and analyzed them for chemicals. Um, and uh, she extracted a substance that uh, many people know about now. It's called THIQ. Uh, and THIQ had the uh, uh, interesting um, property of uh, being able to transmit the symptom of compulsivity. And they generated that symptom in rats. They took a rat, took some rats and put them in a cage, 
and gave them a choice between water and vodka. And uh, you could leave them in there for years and they'd only drink the water. But if you injected them with THIQ, they would go drink themselves unconscious on vodka. Um, so that they, uh, for the first time, could generate the symptoms on a biological basis. And they suspected at that time that there was something more than willpower to the disease of addiction. Because it actually had a biologically identifiable car uh, carrier. So, uh, with that in mind, um, there have been um, lots of um, uh, research done uh, over the last number of years, and I am not, I do not pretend to be an, a current uh, a bibliography of all the research. I just uh, understand the concept as it has been important to me. What is compulsivity? Well, compulsivity uh, is, is defined uh, for the purposes of this particular uh, model is that it is the continuation of the use of a substance or behavior despite adverse consequences and the, and the desire not to do it. And uh, which pretty much describes a lot of what brought us here to the first place, or it brought me here, is, is that I could not understand why I could not decide not to do the crazy things that I was doing. I didn't want to do them. I was trying not to do them. I was in psychotherapy analyzing why I shouldn't do them. I was um, taking medication, uh, and none of that tended to interfere with that uh, that downward spiral. And so I progressed to the point that I was talking about earlier, where I was, you know, doing crazy stuff and life-threatening things. And I was doing that despite the fact that I was a uh, board-certified internist. I knew what I was doing, and I knew the life. My life was in my own hands every time. And I desperately didn't want to do it. So it didn't make any sense. Uh, and when I heard that definition of compulsivity, it made absolute sense to me. Epidemiologically, they find that there are uh, vast differences in people's uh, tendency to have this symptom of compulsivity. Uh, the, the statistics that I have heard are that uh, if there are, you take seven Americans, and uh, they are seven Americans who have ever consumed the drug alcohol. Two of those Americans will be users. Now, a user of alcohol is someone who drinks but does not become intoxicated. Uh, and they're the people that will drink a half a glass of wine and uh, with dinner. They're the people that can leave a glass of wine sitting on the mantel all night uh, and, you know, take a few sips out of it in an entire party. Uh, and on the other hand, I'm the person that looks at that glass of wine and wondering why in the heck they aren't drinking it. And uh, and it it does not make any sense to me because I would uh, I would drink bottles rather than sips. But for a user, that is appropriate behavior. Abusers. They say five out of seven Americans that use a drug alcohol will be an abuser. And an abuser is anyone who overuses a drug alcohol to the point of intoxication. And that, that's very important because as a, as a society, we are an abusing society. 
Most of us that have ever used uh, alcohol, not most, well, most of us, uh, five out of seven of us that have ever used alcohol have at some time in our lives become intoxicated. So we have at that point been an abuser of alcohol. And many of us abuse alcohol more and more than that. And some of us are abusers that drink every day. Some of us are abusers that drink to intoxication every day. However, uh, for a pure abuser, a negative consequence, an advice from some physician or a negative problem in the family, can allow them to moderate or change that behavior. They can either stop it altogether because they decide to, or they can um, moderate it in some form and therefore have retained the power of choice. Uh, I've heard it said that Winston Churchill was an abuser of alcohol, although he drank about a quart every day. Uh, it did not have adverse effects on his ability to function. He was still a great leader and a great statesman. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've heard. I know there are plenty of people like that. One out of that seven, or one out of the five abusers, however, will have the symptom of compulsivity develop. And that symptom will develop, and this poor person will get repetitive negative consequences and make uh, commitments and decisions to stop, but will be unable to stop, and will progress to the point of death if it's left untreated. Now, that is a journey. You start out using alcohol, you go to abusing alcohol, and then you wind up with compulsivity and addiction. And that is the same thing with any uh, addictive substance, you know. If you're using and abusing food, you know, there are many of us who have abused food as a, a youngster, uh, but have been, have been able to make the power of choice to diet and control the weight and control our food intake. And then there are many of us who progressed over a period of years until it was totally out of control with uh, compulsive binging, and we did, could not make the decision. The point of saying all of that is this, is, is that most people who use excessive alcohol, food, drugs, sex, uh, anything else in our society are actually abusers and are addicts by definition of this uh, model. So that those people who can decide to stop or moderate their behavior on the basis of willpower alone do not fit the, do not fit the, uh, the uh, definition of addict as we are defining it here. And most of us, if we could have stopped or modified our behavior on our own by willpower, wouldn't have come here to begin with anyway. Uh, and so the mere fact that I came indicated that I had done it the best that I could and I had flunked so that I came and needed some outside help. So that qualifies me as an addict. And so, you know, I believe that personally the people who say that uh, this is not a disease, uh, there's no way to really know that because there's no way to know whether you're talking about an abuser or an addict anyway. I mean, you may be uh, talking about something entirely different. So, what is the nature of the... Um, of the symptom of compulsivity, which is this mysterious 
symptom of addiction that creates so much uh, shame and so much mystery. I mean, you know, for the for the addict himself, there's this sense of continuous expectation that I should be able to stop and to beat up on myself of why can't I stop? There must be something defective about my moral character only. You know, I just must be a weak and worthless person and no good because I can't stop this behavior. And to try again over and over and to be powerless over and over just increases that sense of despair, shame, and resignation. Uh, and uh, that's where I was when I started. For family members and loved ones, it's the idea of why won't they stop for me? You know, I am, uh, you know, if you loved me enough, you would stop. Uh, and uh, if, if you uh, were committed enough, you would stop. Why can't you do it for me? Well, that is part of what we'll talk about. Now, how, how do we understand this? Well, I, I do this diagrammatically, and, um, and I was going to write on the board. I may not do that, uh, because has everybody got the pictures in their hands? Um, since I don't have a mic that's portable, I will, uh, uh, I will, I will try to do this in a different way. This is a little bit more difficult for me because it's change, and you know how we like change. Um, oh, Glenn to the rescue. Sounds like it's thundering, doesn't it? We're getting a higher power intervention. You know? I think I'm the late Frank Sinatra here, you know, but I won't do it my way. I heard that description this morning, and I uh, I like that. All right, well, this is the way that ah yes, good. This is the way that I like to uh, create this because I I find it interesting and important for me to build this. Is is that in the uh, human brain, for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to simplify what the human brain looks like. The human brain looks like two separate brains. Now, this is diagrammatic. Uh, the top part, or this white glob that sits in our skull, is called the cortex. And the cortex is that high, highly developed part of our brain that allows us to think and reason. It's where we make decisions. Now this, in the, in the scheme of things, developed late, and so it is, it is called the new brain. Now, also, uh, we have a separate part of our brain that has been around for many more generations called the old brain, or the survival brain. Uh, 
And those of you who know anything about uh, neuroanatomy, and if you know anything about neuroanatomy, you probably know more than I do. I know only the very basic amount. But that is the part of the brain that sits under the cap of the cortex. It, it takes in such things as the hypothalamus and the limbic system uh, and a lot of these funny nuclei and, and tracts that you can read about in neuroanatomy books and never were very useful to me. But I, it's useful for this uh, purposes of this discussion because I want to emphasize that this has a separate and autonomous function that is separate from our cortex. And we don't have to think about the things that go on here. They just happen. So that I, if you want to diagram this in a little bit bigger, I'm going to... This part of the brain, this automatic old brain, is where the disease of addiction lives. Um, now, there are lots of other factors which we will see when we do the rest of the story. But for this, this point in time, we're going to draw this hypothalamus and say that it has the six F's as survival functions, because these are survival functions for us. Food, fluids, fight, and we've got to know when to eat or we'll die. We've got to know when to drink water, because we're mostly water. We've got to know when to defend ourselves. Flight, we've got to know when to get the heck out of Dodge if something is threatening us. Uh, feelings, we have to know the feelings to institute all this, and we have to, and reproduction, and reproduction is flirt. Have to be creative to be uncensored. Uh, but at any rate, um, these are the some of the basic instinctual automatic uh, processes that we talk about. You know, if you read the 12-step literature, they talk about instincts run wild and self-will run riot. And this is where our self-will lives. Um, and uh, But these, these functions are very, very necessary for the survival of the species and the survival of the individual. As an individual, if I don't eat, I will die. If I don't drink enough fluids, I'll die. If I don't defend myself, I'll die. And if the species doesn't eat, drink, or defend themselves, the species goes out of existence. So it is only the species that had well-developed survival functions that uh, that survived and are here today. Now, it, I think it's also important to notice at this point, uh, because this was an important point for me, is, is that this part of the brain uh, has more seniority uh, than the new brain. It came before, it has more power, it has more authority, and can make decisions despite what the cortex wants it to do. Um, and that's what it does in order to make us live longer. But occasionally, it can make decisions that are counterproductive to us and can actually be dangerous to us. The example that I always use is the example of the uh, shipwrecked sailor who will be out on the Pacific, and they'll be in a lifeboat surrounded by water. Uh, they'll have no drinking water, and it will get hotter and they will get thirstier and thirstier. They will sit there and look at all of the water around them and they will say, hey, you know, there's water. But then the cortex says, if you drink that water, it's salt water and it'll kill you. Well, after a period of time, the thirst center will overpower their ability to make the decision not to drink the salt water. And they will drink and many have died. 
so that this can overpower our conscious and uh, reasoning brain and do things that are even self-destructive. One of the things that uh, we know is that it has been suspected and uh, talked about for a long time that uh, the disease of addiction has a genetic component to it. Uh, it has a family uh, tendency. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this doesn't mean that all alcoholics will beget alcoholics. Some alcoholics may beget sex addicts, and some ex-sex addicts may beget uh, alcoholics or food addicts or some other kind of addiction. But I say that from my understanding of this is, is that there is some genetic predisposition, uh, which I will call C for compulsivity. Uh, and if the compulsivity gene uh, exists or the tendency exists in some form, and there are several ways to look at that, that makes us predisposed to this, uh, this disease. Now, I believe also that the compulsivity gene comes out in many people, but our culture, in large part, decides what we're addicted to. We may be addicted to uh, alcohol if we've got alcohol, or, you know, as I said, a hundred years ago, guys were addicted to alcohol and uh, prostitution, and today uh, there's crack cocaine and uh, videos. Uh, and, I mean, you know, there's lots of changes in the culture, but the tendency to be compulsive is the same. Now, if you take somebody with the uh, tendency to become alcoholic, uh, especially, and they are, uh, are brought up in a place where they have no access to alcohol and never drink it, they will never develop alcoholism. Or if they're not abusing any substance, they won't, they won't develop in chemical dependency. It takes, as I said before, abuse of the substance or behavior a period of time, and then you cross a biogenetic wall where this predisposition takes on a life of its own. Uh, that's, uh, that's when we lose the power of choice. Uh, that's when we become insane, as in step two. Uh, and this, this large C here has the same power as these other survival instincts. So that when one gets the phenomena of craving developing, the message goes to the system, just like it did with the shipwrecked sailor, is that if I don't follow through with this, I'm going to die. Even though the cortex may be up here saying, you can't do that or you will die, because this has more seniority and more authority. So, uh, this is how we biologically look at the development of the symptom of compulsivity, the phenomena of craving, powerlessness, or insanity. They all mean the same thing for the purposes of this discussion. Now, in here, we have a set of chemicals. This is actually carried out not by a, uh, a set of uh, electrical wiring, as I once thought, 
I thought there were sparks flying through the brain and all of that. It's actually uh, a set of chemicals that we call neurotransmitters. And the neurotransmitters are, you know, the one that's been talked about recently, if you've seen the uh, uh, Bill Moyer's special on addiction, it talked a lot about dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that, it, that lives there. So dopamine is one of the new hot ones. Uh, we've known for years that there's been endorphins, uh, enkephalins, uh, and uh, of course serotonin, which is the uh, uh, Prozac chemical. Uh-oh. And uh, all of these things live in here and govern these feelings. So what? how this works is that you may get a certain level of dopamine that falls. And when, you, when your dopamine level falls, then there is that frantic preoccupation and urge to raise that level, meaning I'm going to die if I don't raise that level. So whatever the addiction is, zap. You do it, you raise the level, and you say, I needed that. I'm going to be okay. But in a short period of time, what happens? It fades again. And you have to do it again. And then it fades again. And you have to do it again. And the other part of that is, is, is that it fades further and further down. So it usually takes more and more of the same stuff to get you back to the same level. So that our tolerance escalates. And we do... You know, we drink more, we use more, we eat more, we act out in more bizarre and dangerous ways in order to get that same hit. And that's all because this is running as a giant in there governing this uh, behavior. Well, we know that the only cure for this or the only way to get this in uh, check is to stop the behavior. And if you stop the behavior over a period of time, this will go back to a small C and the, the predisposition will diminish. Now that is something that, uh, I always thought as a physician when I was training that, you know, you got in, you got an alcoholic and you got in detox and you sent him out on the street and you told him not to drink again and dad gummit, he kept drinking and he kept coming back. And I couldn't understand it. I, I, I knew I was telling him it was going to kill him and that he shouldn't do it, but he kept doing it anyway. And I knew I got him sober enough to understand me. Well, what I did was is we got the chemicals out of his uh, body, but we didn't let this go back to, non, uh, to a non-craving side. And uh, Doug Talbot, uh, who is uh, one of the pioneers in addiction, used to talk about uh, the fact that they've measured... Uh, you know, with electron microscopy and neuropsychological testing, the fact that it takes 11 and a half months for that to go back to a small c and for the phenomena of craving to diminish. Uh, and during that time, there are all sorts of unexplained behaviors and mood swings. There are all sorts of insanity that continues to go on despite the fact that people are abstinent from their behavior, and and I think it's I think it's fascinating to rem- to think about the fact that in the early AAs when they started this back in the 1930s, uh, they realized that there was something 
special about the first year. You know, 11 and a half months, they missed it 15 days. But they knew that something happened at the first year that made it special, and they gave them a birthday cake. I think that it's also interesting to look at this model and to think of what they put up on the walls of the early AA meeting clubhouses. They would say, don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. All of these feelings exist in this part of the brain. And if you get very, very hungry, you will get a deficiency of neurotransmitters. And in an addict, anytime I get uncomfortable, my brain only computes that there's one way to restore that to balance. And that's to use the substance or behavior. So that if I stay out of balance uh, with respect to my self-care, I am far more likely to relapse into my compulsive behavior. The other part of this model that I always like to talk about is, is that we look here, and this journey from use to abuse to compulsivity takes varying lengths of time. Uh, for alcohol, it may take 15 years. You know, people may drink along and do just fine and then cross this wall and be insane. Uh, for food, it takes a while. I mean, it takes a varying length of time. For cocaine, it may take, you know, two weeks or whatever. Uh, it may not take very long at all. But, I mean, there are some drugs that are more addictive than others and some behaviors that are more addictive than others. Uh, the bad news is, is that it takes 11 and a half months to get back. And the worst news is that once you get back here, if for some reason you use again, you had not got another 15 years, you might have about 15 seconds uh, before it goes back to the full-blown compulsion. And that is the reason that you, under, you hear people that have been sober for 20 years in AA go out to get a carton of milk and decide to have a beer and wind up two weeks later in a blackout to dog races in some other state. Uh, because, you know, they said, well, it's been 20 years, I'll just have one. And all of a sudden they take one and blam, it's right there. So that this model kind of gives me some explanation as to why this uh, process of powerlessness exists. Now, this looks pretty hopeless to me. I mean, you know, here I am, I'm, at the vi I'm, a, I'm victimized by this powerlessness. There's no way I can get out of this. Uh, there's no place I can go. Well, that's where uh, the, other, the rest of the story comes in for this part of it. Um, we have, you know, I gave this talk several years ago in uh, in uh, uh, Los Angeles at the International Convention, and there was an Essanon uh, member that sat on the front row and asked me a very profound question, and I and I think her name was Robin, but I don't know, uh, and I, I've never seen her again. But it it changed the way that I I thought about this whole um, this whole talk. She says, "Well, gee, that's very interesting, Lee, but where does God fit into that?" And I, <laughs> and I said, uh, well, I, you know, he fits in here over at meetings and in the big book and all that sort of stuff. You know, I kind of didn't know, you know. Well, I have uh, subsequently done a lot of thinking, a lot of reading, and there is a real uh, body of information that implies that... Uh, the nature to be the, the tendency to be spiritual is a basic part of human programming. Is is that every culture 
ever studied for the last 60,000 years has had some sort of spiritual framework in it. Um, and it has been postulated by the uh, uh, sociobiologists and the people that do this work, uh, starting back with Ed Wilson back in the late 70s, he did a work, he did a book called On Human Nature, which is, which is very interesting, by the way, uh, in which he says that humans can be spiritual and religious, and that is the reason we survive as a race and as a population. As we develop higher and higher brain function, we develop the, the capacity to think, to squabble, to obsess, and to dissipate our, our tribes or packs in a such a way that we would have perished alone. Is, is that we had to have some way to stick together and not fight amongst ourselves so much that we killed each other and died off as a species. So that we have this predisposition to come together in groups based on faith and suspend our self-will run riot and suspend our cortex uh, ability to think and try to think us out of existence and to follow something on faith for the good of a, of a common group. We come together in groups following a common cause, and that forms a religious or spiritual um, nucleus. That is what I believe lives on the other side of this. That's the big S, because spirituality is the only thing that lives within the survival brain and has equal power to the compulsion is that it is not dependent on the cortex's decision to think about it. Now, the cortex is involved in spirituality because I think that that's where religion lives. That's where theology lives. That's where philosophy lives. But basic spiritual experiences live here and are not uh, directed uh, by any uh, cortical functions. Now, with this power, we've got something that can offset that. And, uh, and so that the, uh, the great fact is this, and nothing less, that we've all had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And this is what we, what we utilize. It utilizes the same uh, neurotransmitter system to fight this same battle. Now, this is, this is a user-friendly model of spirituality from, uh, from my standpoint, because... Uh, I mean, it fits most everything that people can believe about religion or spirituality. If, if you are uh, Christian, Jewish, or, or have a specific God that you believe in as the creator, uh, then I think it's very simple to believe that we were created with a special modem that allowed him to plug in when we, uh, when we were needed and when we decided we wanted to plug in. And he would infuse us with the power uh, to take care of our problems. Um, of course, if you're an atheist, you can say, well, this is all just evolution and it occurred by chance. Um, or if you're an agnostic, you can say, I don't care, it's just there. Um, you know, you can, you can use this, but just know that it has to be there. Now, I, 
how do you use this? Um, and that's one of the things I said and I have on there is that there are five basic aspects of having a spiritual experience. And that is, is that we have to have some sort of need uh, to utilize spirituality. And one need that we have is that it is a basic part of our hardwired pro- programming. Uh, but then uh, many of us get more need because we start developing pain from some of these things being out of balance. So that we feel like we need some sort of spirituality to help us heal. And once we have that need and we know about it and we're out there ready to receive it, we have to have a message of hope that this spiritual experience can help us. And so that the message comes to us. We also need, I believe, a personal messenger who is believable and who can be connected with uh, as most likely have had the experience themselves. So, you know, you see an example, you can connect with them, and you start getting the sense of belief in the experience of others, and belief in the experience of others is the rudiments of faith. And that begins with this messenger who is believable. Uh, all spiritual movements that I am aware of uh, are dependent in some way on some sort of fellowship. Uh, is, is it people come together for a common purpose and share strength, hope, and experience with each other so that they're stronger together? and so that the fellowship is part of this spiritual movement. And then, for it to be effective, I think it has to be, uh, it has to have some form of maintenance. Uh, and that maintenance uh, program comes from different ways to different people, depending on their talents and their specific uh, uh, ways that they can utilize those talents. And it may most frequently become as a part of uh, becoming involved in a uh, carrying the message themselves. So that if you look at this, this is a biogenetic uh, explanation that suits my understanding of how I behave. It shifted my paradigm uh, on how I understood my behavior. It gave me the willingness to seek something that I didn't have, which was a spiritual experience. And and that gave me the willingness to start uh, pursuing recovery because I had been pursuing it because of my own self-control. Now, as Paul Harvey would say, that's uh, there's the rest of the story. The rest of the story is is that it, it's obviously not quite that technical, quite that scientific, because we have to have some user-friendly way of approaching this. Uh, and as I as I mentioned today, as as I got started by going to 12-step meetings understanding this basic biogenetic protocol uh, because I was addicted uh, to all of those things that I was addicted to and that I had gotten that way from a journey from abuse of the substance or behavior and across the biogenetic wall. And then I got sober and I made this journey back. I started getting sober because this gave me pain. You know, that's where that's what's driving me. Then I got back here after getting in that pink cloud for a while and I found something else, pain. And I hit a wall in recovery of pain. And uh, so that's when I started doing my busyness routine that I was talking about. And it got faster and faster and faster. But I mean, we all have little uh, behaviors that we uh Abuse, whether that be food, activity, work, relationships, gambling, whatever it is, 
There's a whole lot of behaviors that come about to medicate this pain. Well, lo and behold, after enough time, like it happened to me, these behaviors give you pain. And so, I'm in a trap again. What do I do to keep on the journey? Uh, so, uh, what I have to do... Well, actually, if you look at the language of the heart, this is something Bill Wilson discovered when he wrote his emotional sobriety letter. Uh, and he talked about uh, his uh, dependency. And he was dependent on a lot of different things. And then he would use these dependency and he would, he would get relief. And then he would have a letdown and have to use them again. And it would go round and round and round and round. And that's when this begins to feel like this. Well, over the period of years, uh, the psychologists and therapists have come around and have termed this coexisting dependencies or codependency. Uh, so that this actually, these this group of self-medicating behaviors is the definition of codependency on a medical uh, uh, level. So, I look at all of this pain, and you know, we've got depression over here, and shame, and fear, and a whole lot of feelings that have developed and are driving this thing this way and this way. Now, the best thing that I did was when I started looking in another fashion, and I said I had to get from my head and my cortex, I had to get out of my cortex and into my heart to actually feel, to examine the feelings part of my disease, which listed right here. And actually the, the, uh, the solution is, is that when you do, uh, on a deep and effective level, Steps four through nine, you incise and drain this abscess, and it starts to heal in, and the pain subsides, and the pressure to go this way lessens. But this actually comes, this pain develops usually from life's experiences, and many of them are painful. And we learn how to deny and repress them early on in childhood, or I did. And after a period of years of stuffing these, you get a slush fund of feelings or an emotional abscess. And I call this undifferentiated emotional pus that just lives in here. I mean, that's the garbage. That's the wreckage of the past. And uh, it really does need cleaning up. It needs draining. It needs some sort of antibiotics, you know. If you've got an abscess, there are two ways you can treat it. You can feed morphine and codeine and pain medicines in it, or you can drain the sucker and get rid of it. Well, I think that the steps in the early AAs had designed us uh, a way to drain this abscess. It's our, it's our uh, responsibility to attack it in such a way that uh, we can make it happen. And we each have to find our own mechanism for doing this. So that once you find out you can get through this, you get back and you're living life again. Uh, and the uh, and life is what it's all about. I think living and spirituality are the same because spirituality comes from spiritus, meaning breath, and the, and it means life. And I think that when I'm alive, I'm spiritual. And uh, so that if I'm out here having my life's experiences, 
Lo and behold, some of them are going to be painful again. So I don't want to deny, repress, and do this again. And I think that's the reason we need to do 10, 11, and 12. Over and over and over again. This is not a curable condition. It'll keep filling up unless I keep it under wraps. And unless I keep it in maintenance. And that's the reason I'm still coming back after 12 and a half years is because my, my abscess fills up periodically and I have to keep working every day to try to keep it clean. So that we have this as the giant that goes on inside us and drives our, our, our disease of addiction and codependency. One thing this does point out is, is that if you take an addict over here and scratch the paint off, what have you got? you got a codependent. Uh, and uh, <laughs> well, that's the next session. But at any rate, uh, so that uh, I think that uh, I think that all of us addicts who claim that we don't belong in some sort of codependency recovery, uh, I, well, you know, that may not be right. I don't know. For me, it wasn't right. Uh, that's my strength, hope, and experience. One of the things that I point out, just to make a point uh, that was helpful to me was to realize that this was a biogenetic, emotional, spiritual disease. There are many other processes that go on in our lives, and as a physician, I see these every day. Take diabetes, for example. Now, diabetes is a problem with insulin, and it's a problem with blood sugar. And uh, it has a treatment uh, that you can, you can use medications and you can try to get things uh, in line. However... Uh, if you see a diabetic uh, who has this going on underneath it, uh, there's not enough insulin in the world to uh, treat somebody who is binging on food and is doing binging and purging or is restricting. Uh, is, is that when you have a condition such as this, there is going to be an interaction between these two. And one usually doesn't get well without another one. High blood pressure is another one with salt and alcohol and drugs. Um, and uh, heart failure is another one. One of the most tricky and one of the most least understood, I think, is, is that there is a separate disease other than this that causes depression. That's a biological problem. And it's a biological uh, problem in the neurotransmitter system itself that is not necessarily... Uh, is not necessarily addiction. It's not necessarily a spiritual deficiency. It's a disease like diabetes, high blood pressure. And this disease needs to be treated as does diabetes, and it also has some interaction with this. So that this is one of the things that we see frequently, is if you've got a depressed, addicted person, and they only take antidepressants, then they experience all of the pain and depression of going on around here. Likewise, is that if you have an addicted person who has depression uh, and they just do the work here, they will think that they're never getting well because the depression keeps clobbering them from here and they may lose their ability to proceed on through depression. So that it is my uh, personal observation after 10 or 12 years that... Uh, in a certain number of people, both medical and emotional, spiritual help is needed. And that's what the big book said, too. I mean, if you look at the big book, it said, if you need outside help, go get it. And I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about that because people think that the spiritual solution 
should be the solution to absolutely everything, and it doesn't cure diabetes. It doesn't cure hypertension. Uh, it can help cure it because it can help the lifestyle changes, but you still need medical treatment. And I think the same is true for a large selection of psychiatric diseases. And, and for many people, there's a great deal of shame associated with taking medications and feeling weak or defective. And I don't think that, from my standpoint, that there's any more defectiveness there than there is if you're taking insulin for diabetes or micronase or one of the pills. So that this is a um, uh, kind of an overview of the uh, entire spectrum of addictive and codependency diseases as it relates to compulsivity and my insane codependent behaviors. And it was when I, with this bit of information, I had that paradigm shift like, oh, yeah, well, this is, there's something else going on that I didn't know about. It's like the guy telling him that the, the, their mother had died, you know? You just, you've got another reason to look at it differently. That is why I had the willingness to proceed on and to seek out emotional and spiritual uh, connections uh, that has so far uh, kept me in recovery and given me about a 12-year reprieve on my life, uh, for which I am grateful. So uh, that's all I have, and I'm going to uh, end it here. But if I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.